against me. And so, therefore, this is called the power of the pulpit. And I get to show you grandchildren. There's uh, the little guy. Zeke is his name. His older sister holding him is uh, Birdie, excuse me. She's four going on 12. And then there's Olive uh, next to him. She's two going on three. And then Zeke. And uh, so that's our grandson. And thank you for praying for us. He was born on uh, my, what would have been my mother's 95th birthday, March 6th. So uh, he's a big guy. And then this is his response, I'm told, of when he found out he had two older sisters. <laughs> I think it's because he's an Oregon Ducks fan, <laughs> is what I think there. So, But nevertheless, uh, his nana and I think our grandchildren, especially Zeke, the new one, is cute as a bug's ear, and uh, so uh, this is no relative of ours, I don't think. So anyway, wanted you to uh, see them, and uh, thank you for praying for us again. We are excited about grandchildren. It's the great thing, you know, and that's why Warren Wiersbe says children are called grandchildren because they're grand when they come and grand when they leave, and uh, so that's a good thing. Well, this morning we are returning to the Gospel of John. Uh, Bill read for us some portions of John. It's difficult to preach through narrative books of the Bible, historical books like a gospel, by just picking a few uh, places. But as we move our way towards Resurrection Sunday, I wanted to touch in the Gospel of John about uh, Jesus and his declaration of who he was when he walked on earth. And... uh, Today, of course, as in every age, Jesus is a very controversial figure and uh, has been and will continue to be so so until his return. Uh, Many of you have read C.S. Lewis, uh, the great British uh, historian and uh, writer, and he popularized the argument that Jesus was either a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. Uh, If you've read Mere Christianity, you'll find an expansion of his quote on that, liar, lunatic, or Lord. But actually, C.S. Lewis did not invent that approach to understanding what Jesus was, who he said he was. In the 19th century, there was a Scottish preacher, a Christian named John Duncan, who formed what he called the trilemma, the trilemma. And in that argument, he said, Christ is either number one, deceived mankind by conscious fraud. He purposefully deceived mankind by conscious fraud. Or number two, he was in self-deluded or self-deceived. Or number three, he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. In other words, you have to make a choice. And that's the question before all of us is, who do we say Jesus is? And what is the evidence? What does the data say? Uh, that we base our belief upon. Another one who advanced a very similar article, you may be familiar with Watchman Nee. In 1936, he wrote a book called The Normal Christian Faith. And uh, he said, a person who claims to be God must belong to one of three categories. First, if he claims to be God and yet is, in fact, is not, he has to be a madman or a lunatic. Second, if he is neither God nor a lunatic, he has to be a liar, deceiving others by his life. Or third, if he is neither of these, he must be God. In philosophy, this is called the syllogism, 
And it's a, a logical way of coming to a point of truth. Watchman Nee goes on to say, you can choose only one of these three possibilities. If you do not believe that he is God, you have to consider him a madman. If you cannot, cannot take him for either of the two, you have to take him for a liar. There is no need for us to prove if Jesus of Nazareth is God or not. All we have to do is find out if he is a lunatic or a liar. If he is neither, he must be the son of God. And so, liar, lunatic, or Lord. As we read through these passages in the Gospel of John or in all of the Gospels, uh, it's interesting how much opposition that Jesus got from the religious establishment, from those in power, and from those who had much to lose if this was truly the Messiah. Let me pray as we look into this one verse this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. I thank you for each one here. We thank you for our children downstairs and in the nursery. We thank you for the staff who cares for them and teaches them the word of God. And Lord, today we pray that each person would grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be struck again by the very figure and character of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit to lead us in the truth, to teach us. We thank you for your word in our own heart language. We thank you for the freedom and the ability to meet publicly and openly in this building. We thank you, Lord, for providing this campus. And now today, Lord, in these few minutes, may we all be attentive to what you have for us and that we would be changed and transformed because of this encounter with you with your word, and with one another. For it's in Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen and amen. Again, the Gospel of John. Remember, each gospel has a major thrust or purpose or theme in presenting Jesus, the person of Jesus. Remember, Matthew is presenting Jesus as the king, as a sovereign. Mark is presenting Jesus as a servant. And Luke, of course, as Dr. Luke presents him in his humanity, Those are the major thrusts. And here in John, the Apostle John is giving us Jesus in his divinity. He is divine, and Jesus speaks for himself. And so uh, we come to this uh, gospel of John, and even though it is a very simple gospel, it it contains very profound truths and statements of truth. John, in fact, if you were to... uh, take a beginning Greek course. We used to call it baby Greek because the New Testament was written in what was called Koine Greek. Originally, the original manuscripts were in the trade language of the day. Remember, in the Roman Empire, there was the Greeks. There was the whole Middle East, North Africa, extending far into India and into Spain uh, in the first century. And Koine Greek was the trade language. It was every man's language. And God, in his infinite wisdom, chose that language to write down the original manuscripts. And so if you were to take a biblical Greek course, the first one, we used to call it baby Greek, and uh, you would begin by translating, not only understanding the alphabet and the vocabulary, you'd begin to memorize vocabulary and forms of words, uh, grammar and syntax, but you'd also begin translating the Gospel of John because it is written in very simple vocabulary grammar, and syntax, or sentence structure. And that's where you would begin, and uh, you would learn quickly. Uh, You would have to, because your professor would want you to learn very quickly. And so, John, even though it is uh, simple in its structure, in its vocabulary, it contains some of the most profound truths found in all of Scripture. 
In fact, John is the evangelical, evangelistic book. What is the book we ask people who don't believe in Jesus to read first? We always ask them to read the Gospel of John because it is directed towards those who need to understand the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the God-man. And so we come to this passage, and he has been claiming certain things in John here. In this particular portion, it begins actually in chapter 7, verse 1. He is at the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, we're not very aware of the Jewish feasts and how they feed into Christianity, how the whole Jewish uh, context of the Old Testament and here in the Gospels has set the stage for Christianity for the church. And so we come today to this passage in the Feast of Booths. Let me just read you a description of it uh, out of Easton's Bible Dictionary. The Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths was the third of the great annual festivals of the Jews. It was also called the Feast of Ingathering in Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 16. It was celebrated immediately after harvest in the month Tizri. Now, maybe in some of your study Bibles, you will have a comparison of the Hebrew months with the months we use on the Roman calendar. But it was roughly from mid-October to mid-November is the end of harvest, and they would be celebrating that. It lasted eight days by command of God in Leviticus 23. And during this period, the people would leave their homes. It was called the Feast of Booths because they would make shelters out of boughs of trees and greenery, and they would stay in those shelters for the eight days. And there were a number of sacrifices, but it was a time of celebration of God's faithfulness. It was a memorial for the wilderness wanderings uh, that the people experienced in the Exodus when they were brought out of Egypt. It was also to be a thanksgiving for the harvest in Nehemiah chapter 8. Later, the Jews added, after they were came back out of exile, uh, they added two appendages to the original festival. The first one was they drew water from the pool of Siloam there in Jerusalem, and they poured, up, poured it upon the altar as a memorial and remembering back when God provided water in Horeb in the Exodus. And uh, so there's Old Testament setting for this. And secondly, they added the lighting of the gigantic lamps at night, a memorial of a pillar of fire during their wanderings, a reminder that God led them uh, by night in a pillar of fire. Another writer writes that the Feast of Tabernacles, the harvest festival of the Jewish church, was the most popular and important festival in Hebrew life. In Jerusalem, it was a gala day. It was uh, to the autumn pilgrims who arrived on the 14th of the month and uh, began on the 15th of the month like an entrance into a beautiful city. Rooftops and courtyards, streets and squares, roads and gardens were green with boughs of citron and myrtle, palm, and willow. And the booths recalled the pilgrimage through the wilderness and the great spiritual harvest that God was having. But this was more than just a celebration of a physical harvest, but it was pointing to, it was pointing to, it was rested upon the redemption of the Messiah who was to come. And they were looking forward to the free, being freed from the sin, being forgiven of their sin, and year after year they would celebrate the Feast of Booths. And so here we come to this, and this is where Jesus is in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Booths, but he's teaching, in fact, it starts in 7-1, goes through the end of chapter 8, and he's teaching, some would say he's preaching to the people who will listen, 
And at the end, if you notice, at the end of chapter 8, it wasn't nice sermon, brother. Uh, Therefore, in verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, I must say that I've never been threatened with stoning, uh, but Jesus was a very controversial figure in that time. And here we come to verse 12, and Jesus, if you you, uh, read down through verse 39 and then jumped over to chapter 8, verse 12, and 739 to 812, it would bring it together. There's some a couple of instances between there where it's uh, kind of parenthetical and there's the story of the woman caught in adultery. But Jesus spoke to them again, saying in verse 12, I am the light of the world. And so we come to this, and he is doing it in the context of the Temple Mount. He's at the temple, and they have these gigantic lanterns lit. It is said that they would, uh, they would illuminate the whole city in that time. And Jesus is using that as a backdrop, and he is claiming, I am the light of the world here. And Jesus makes this potent declaration, basically the I am statement, a statement of fundamental identification. In John 8, 58, notice his declaration there. In 8, 58, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. In that fact, with these words, he revealed himself as the eternal son of God. He's claiming equality with God. And for the Jewish mind of that day and age, that was, uh, that was heresy. That was beyond belief. He had always existed with that statement. He always will exist. And from the beginning, uh, he was Christ, and he did not have an ending because of his grace, his works, his death, resurrection, and life. But Jesus Christ is eternal, and he was making that very clear declaration. They were very well aware of the comments in Isaiah. In Isaiah, you are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no other God formed, and there will be none after me. Exclusivity in the fact that Jesus Christ is claiming uh, complete correspondence with God the Father. Isaiah 48, 12, listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. This is an implicit claim that Jesus, when he says, I am, he says he's equal with God. Of course, to really understand the impact, we would go back to Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. In that context, Moses has been at the burning bush, and he is being sent by God back to Egypt to rescue God's people out of Egypt. And Moses, of course, is trying to think up ways to get out of this assignment. But he says to God, as he's speaking to him there, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God responds, and he says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you may say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you the very premier name of God, I am. He is the self-existent one. He is eternal from eternity past to eternity future. And uh, so he is claiming equality with God there. And Jesus declares his equality. He goes on to solidify the claim that he is the Messiah. And he gives us an evocative image. And, of course, we have to imagine what it would be like with these giant lanterns lit 
these oil lamps lit that are illuminating the sky and the city below them from the Temple Mount. And this evocative image in verse 12 where he says to them, Jesus spoke to them, I am the light of the world. Now, if you study the Gospel of John, you know light and darkness is a major thing, theme through the Gospel of John. And, of course, throughout Scripture, really, darkness always represents bondage and sin. It represents the fact that we are caught in the darkness. We are in bondage to darkness, and Jesus Christ is the light. He is the answer that God has given. In fact, at the very beginning of this Gospel, in chapter 1, verse 4, we see the first occurrence speaking of this Logos who has come. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In him was life, and life was the light of men. And there's a number of other occurrences, if we were to go through them, uh, where the light is referenced here, and always in the fact that this is the answer to all the darkness around us. And so this image, Jesus is speaking in the Temple Mount. He says, I am the light, not a light, or not one among many, but it's an exclusive declaration that he is light. We think about the whole issue of light. It illumines us, illumines our path, doesn't it? The way we walk. I remember uh, many times hunting in Montana and uh, being caught after dark trying to find our way back to the camp or to the, our uh, pickups. And uh, at that day and age, I must not have been well prepared. I never had a flashlight. So we'd stumble around in the darkness. And uh, boy, if I'd, if I'd have just thought about bringing a light But you think about the necessity of illuminating the darkness in the middle of a dark night. Not only does he illuminate it, but he penetrates the darkness. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, the great author, when he was a child, his parents recorded that he was always intrigued with the lamplighter who would go up and down the streets of his city and light the lamps when it started to get dark. He had a ladder and a torch, and he would set each lamp ablaze every evening. And one evening, this was in Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson stood watching uh, as a child with great fascination, and his parents heard him exclaim, look, look, there is the man out there punching holes in the darkness. And I thought, what, a, what an appropriate illustration for what Jesus Christ does. Robert Louis Stevenson summed up the life of Christ. Jesus came into this world and accomplished many great and miraculous wonders, yet his primary purpose was to punch great gaping holes holes in the spiritual darkness that shroud this world. He came to be the light of the world. So he illumines our path. He penetrates the darkness. He dispels the darkness. When you think of darkness, there's no energy to darkness. Light has energy, and it dispels it. You don't chase away light by introducing darkness, but the light chases and dispels the darkness. It gives us direction. It reveals the truth about things. In fact, in Scripture, especially in the Psalms and in the Proverbs, when it talks about the deeds of darkness, what are those? Those That's sin uh, in mankind's lives. And when they're done at night, they're done in darkness. John 1.5 says, the light, of dar- the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Of course, a great illustration of this is Helen Keller. If you've read anything about Helen Keller, you know that uh, she was taught by her teacher, Annie Sullivan. And one of the great breakthroughs that she records is the fact that Helen Keller, who did not have sight or hearing, and uh, the, there was a dramatic moment when her dark, silent world 
was broken through with the illumination of language. Annie Sullivan took Helen Keller out uh, by the house, and uh, they were drawing water from a pump, from a well. And she put Helen Keller's hand under the water so she could feel it. And then she wrote W-A-T-E-R. And uh, finally it got through, and Helen Keller reveals that the mystery of the language was revealed to me. I knew that W-A-T-E-R meant the wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. The living world awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy, and set me free. She discovered truth even in the midst of her blindness. So he reveals the truth. He provides safety. And we think about the safety of a nightlight. Many of you have nightlights in your home that illuminate a stairway or a hallway uh, or for children to know that they're not in complete darkness. And it provides safety, a sense of safety if we get up in the darkness. It provides security. Jesus Christ calls us to a secure family relationship with him. He calls us to live out that secure family relationship. We're called children of light in Ephesians 5.8. Jesus is the great I am who answers the darkness of the world and now calls people unto himself in faith. And then he gives us this compelling call at the last part of verse 12. I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. There's a decision to be made. Notice it says, whoever... There's a fact of unlimited atonement. There are those who teach today that Jesus only died for the elect. It's called limited atonement. And yet we believe the Bible teaches unlimited atonement. There's ample evidence of that for God so loved the world. And the world there means all of humankind that whosoever believeth him will not perish but will have everlasting life. And there's a decision of the will here, a decision of the will to follow him. And he will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. And what is that light of life? It's the riches that only Christ can give us. Listen to these words, John 12, 46. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. John 9, 5. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of the darkness. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Acts 13, 47. For the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so we are lights. He is a compelling, compellingly calling us. Of course, there was much dispute about his character, just like there is today. Much dispute about who Jesus was. In fact, people even question whether he was a historical character at all and not just a myth. And yet, we have to take the claims of Scripture by faith, the authoritative word of God. Philippians 2.15, one of my children, it was their life verse. I don't know if it still is. Uh, Philippians 2.15 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And uh, so that, here's the reason why, so that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. This verse came back to me just in the last few days as Mike Pence, our vice president, got so much abuse and criticism because he said he would not dine alone with another woman other than his wife. Uh, He basically has adopted Billy Graham's 
approach to ministry and to being out around the opposite sex. And he took much criticism, and I thought, uh, we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You know, I think Warren Worsby said, crooks and perverts, that's who's out there. But we are to appear as lights in the world. When we lived in, the, in Dallas uh, at Christmas time, uh, many, many people would put out uh, the Spanish version of the Christmas lights, the luminaria along their sidewalks or in front of their houses, and it would illumine your path. It would light the darkness up. Ephesians 5.8 says, So you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. How do we do that? It's because of Jesus Christ who says, I am the light of the world. He is the very God-man. God man. And he spoke of these things, even though many people rejected him and have rejected him over the centuries and do so today. What is the difference? What did Jesus mean in verse 28? Look at verse 28 with me. In verse 28, <clears throat> excuse me, he said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. What made the difference? The difference was the cross. He's referring to what was future tense then, to the cross of Calvary that we celebrate and we recognize on Good Friday through Passion Week, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you see Jesus on the cross, you begin to understand some facts about his life, what he claimed through the Gospels here. When you see him, that's what he is saying. When he is lifted up on the cross, he gave himself for your sins and my sins and for the sins of the whole world. And when that occurs in history uh, or the eyes of faith, you'll begin to see Jesus for who he is. The Bible declares that he is the Lord of glory, the liberator of humankind, the redeemer of our sins, the cleanser of our shame, the one who can wash away all of our stains and forgive us, the one who will give us the power of his word. And you will see that he speaks with authority as the Father taught him. You'll see the sinless beauty of the Son of God who is a delight to the Father's heart. The model man as God intended him man to be and all that becomes visible when you think of the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's uh, for good reason that we need to remember the story of the cross this Easter time when we recall what Jesus did for us and the beauty of the resurrection. And it's good to remember all the detail that God has given us in the Gospels here as we travel through just the Gospel of John these uh, next couple of weeks. And uh, when we think of Gethsemane, the deep darkness of his own loneliness, his prayers, his disappointment with his disciples, the bloody sweat that fell from his brow, the traitor's kiss, the blinding blow in the face, the scourging, the smiting, the spitting upon him, the buffeting, the mocking, the crown of thorns, the sorrowful way through the city streets, the burden of the cross, the exhaustion he endured, the collapse, the stripping, the impaling upon the cross, the nails through his hands, the jeers of his foes, the flight of his friends, the hours on the cross, the darkness, the terrible cry that came from his lips, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Probably the deepest portion of scripture. The thirst, the triumphant cry at the end where he said, it is finished. When we remember that, Jesus declares that you will see the awful reality of human depravity, the terrible evil that lurks in every single human heart, without exception that makes it necessary for us to lay a hold of the 
only one who can rescue us from a very deep darkness. The only one who will get us, and that's the Lord Jesus himself. When we see the love that God spelled out for us in Christ, who gave us his only son, who he spared not his only son, but gave himself up for us, how much more freely will he give us all things? That is why the cross is such an important thing to the Christian faith. That's why we have made it our symbol of faith, because it is there for us to begin to see life as the way it really is and the way it really could be as we believe in him. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, and we praise you for your loving kindness to us all. And we pray this morning that you would be honored and glorified in what we do. And we thank you for this time of communion together. In Jesus' name, amen. The men who are going to help.